right? We got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. You don't got time that. All right? Let's go. Break it. Break it. Glenn Cross. Woo! Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Adam Drovetta on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk here on KLWN Loaded Show today. We've got David Lesky hopping on with us at 340 to talk Royals. Another RCST trivia matchup at 4.05. We'll get to Around the World with Adam. Zach Boyer of the LJ World, KUSports.com, will join us to talk KU football at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. And then Ike Opara, the assistant coach for Sporting KC2, joins us at 5.25. And uh, if you haven't seen it already, go to our Twitter account, at RCST1320, and we have a tweet up there about um, if you just retweet this, we're going to pick some random winners tomorrow to win free tickets to the SKC2 game on Sunday at uh, 1 o'clock. I hope, uh, I hope Zach's a nice guy. Mm. He's, he's from back east. He's from the the New England area. They they have a reputation of maybe being <laughs> a rough and gruff group. Um, but I I don't think the LJ World would hire a, a mean brooding guy. Don't right? No, got to be a good dude. No, um, but I do want to start today's show off with Ernest Uday. So let's try not I've to uh, to upset you know his parents. Stay you know family, family members, or friends, or whoever. Chill. Right? Um, let me just reiterate, we are going to give a ceiling and give a floor. I will say that one is going to be just more negative, make everybody happy. more positive. Let's right? just make everybody happy. You can take whichever one you think. His ceiling's National Player of the Year. Yep. All right, let's just... His floor is his, Big 12 Player his, of the Year. Exactly. His floor is also National Player of the Year. <laughs> All right, well... His, uh, his ceiling is 50 points a game. His floor is 48 points right, a game. Right, so it'll be a great season for uh, Ernest Uday, but he'll only be maybe seventh on KU in scoring at yeah, 50 yeah, points per game. Yeah. Um, so just kind of looking in earnest today, obviously it's it's impossible to totally know what you're going to get from these freshmen, even if you have the best scouting report in the world, even if you've watched all this film or watched the guy in person or, or done this or that, you never know how it's going to translate. I mean, I remember being so jazzed up about what KU was getting with Shaq Diallo. He played seven and a half minutes. Yeah, that went well. Right. Um, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But nonetheless, I think... The thing with recruiting rankings, a lot of people do like to poke holes in the idea that, like, well, look at this three-star guy. He made it in the NBA draft, or there's more three-star and four-stars that, that make it than five-stars. That's just because there's more of them. Because there's more three- and four-stars exactly. that exist and, than five-stars. And it's not to say that all five-stars end up, you know, being great, but if you just look at the percentage, the percentage of guys who are five-stars, more often of them turn into X than the percentage of three and four stars, right? It's just a better percentage. It doesn't guarantee I think anything. A good person to look at for a five star, like I would say just I like I think because like Michael Beasley was amazing. Kevin Durant was amazing. I, I Andrew Wiggins was not up to their level in college. Um but I would say he was remarkable. His second team all American. He was pretty yeah, he was great. So top ten. So player. people get these these because of the like through the one and done era, we got this idea of what a five star recruit is, and there's even levels within the five star mm-hmm. level. And I would say that Wayne Selden was a legit. I I don't think he was. 
I don't think he fell short of what you'd expect no, out of a, a five longer. star. Well, that's it, the it took a little longer, but like he turned out to be a really good player. Like I think because there are just these phenomenons that occasionally come around. People hear five star and they just think, oh yeah, that's what he's going right. to be. Well, but a five star player could turn out to be somebody who finds the floor their freshman year. And then by their junior year, they're really starting to get it. Yeah, because that's what they're doing with the recruiting rankings. They're they're projecting basketball career, and so it's impossible to totally know. Like, is this five star we're getting? Like, by all accounts, Grady Dick. He's he's not like a top ten recruit when you I'm look at his services, him. but he the seems mo- like one of those five stars who the expectation is that he's going to have a big impact right away. Yeah, the, the more I read, to, the more I agree. Right, and, and so like you see, Ty Ty Washington was not like a top ten recruit last year, but he had an immediate impact. Maybe over some other guys. I remember Markel Fultz, who ended up averaging you know, 25 points per game on a terrible Washington team, he was ranked like 8th or something like that. Yeah. So it, there's differences in it. But nonetheless, Uday is ranked 28th in the 24-7 composite. Um, so top 30 guy. Obviously, he was a McDonald's All-American. Here is the scouting report listed by Jerry Meyer from 24-7 Sports. And it adds in that there's a comp to the player, which is Thomas Bryant, who was a really solid player at Indiana. Um, it also has the projection for him to eventually, it doesn't say what year, but it says eventually they think he can be a first-round draft pick. Here is the scouting report on Uday. Has a tremendous physique at six foot ten, including a seven foot two wingspan. Is a quality athlete for a center. Plays with energy and runs rim to rim. Excels at snatching and finishing lob passes. Is also dangerous offensive rebounder with his pursuit of positioning and good hands. Not a polished offensive player. Has limited shooting range. Tends to play upright. And needs to refine his footwork. Does have a go-to right-handed jump hook. Not a ball handler and is mechanical in his passing, but tends to make the correct read, is a quality rim protector on defense, is engaged on that end, controls space as a rebounder. So, again, that is from uh, Jerry Meyer with 24-7 Sports. I'll say this. He's got a couple. Now, I want to be clear. Highlight videos go out showing what they are, their highlights. Um, that's not going to be what they do every every time. What I showed, what I saw from his highlight, again, highlight videos, so that's not everything. Um, he One thing that he did, and I think this is just a matter of, of strength, um, he really, now in an ideal world, you're never getting boxed out, but occasionally a dude's going to get position on you. He really seemed to have a, a nose for the ball even when he was getting boxed out and avoiding an over-the-back, uh, and not just avoiding it because they didn't call it, but actually avoiding going over the guy's back. He really seemed to have a good for the, a nose for the ball um on on some of those highlight videos um I I yeah the everything I've seen of him I just I agree with that. I'd also add again just based on what I've seen and this may come with time. I I'd love to see a little more bounce and that, you know, um and also and I've said I said this about David McCormick. I've said this about every big man I've ever seen play as a freshman except for Joel Embiid when big men come in as freshmen to college basketball it looks like they don't have abs when they run because they they do not they they kind of run in this weird bent over motion because they just they don't have the same strength of the core because they're they're so long their core hasn't had time to to catch up with the body like a six foot three guy i think that when you read that scouting report it makes it seem pretty clear that um, Uday immediately impacts things more on the defensive end and the rebounding, and obviously great length, six ten, seven foot two wingspan. That's really I like good. hearing that. Yeah, that is uh, that's very good. Um, the the ability to even though maybe the offensive game isn't polished quite yet, that he does have the go to right handed hook shot. 
You know, that's that's kind of like what Mitch Lightfoot was. Mitch Lightfoot didn't have like the Hakeem Olajuwon dream shake and all, but like he was just so solid at a right-handed jump hook. Like that's that's all he needed because he was so darn good at it and getting there. Right, like doing like having a move that they because it was obvious everybody knew that's what that mm-hmm. was his move, but he was still good enough. Like they couldn't stop him from getting there. It's yeah. not just that he was effective when he got it. He got it a lot. And so it takes time to, you know, Mitch Lightfoot had years to hone his craft and, and get the footwork and get in those right angles and right spots. But um, that is good that even while the offense is filling out and developing, however long Ernest Duday is is in college and, and at the University of Kansas, he does at least have that calling card, which is important that we know Bill Self is going to want someone who can score on the block. Uh, but also we know how much Bill Self values defense and rebounding and, and dunking the basketball. And those are all things that I see him being um, – Maybe even your best center at this next season. Yeah, um, the the if we could if we could get if this team could get the get itself a true shot blocker, uh, that's something it hasn't had in a while. Um, he's the guy you highlight among those centers. Yeah, I right? agree. He's the guy most likely to become that. Um, I I'll also say I do wonder if part of the lack of of a lot of offensive tools is because he hasn't needed them. Like when when you're a five star recruit, a lot of the time now when you're on the AAU circuit, it gets more exposed because there are going to be tournaments. If you're a five star recruit, that means you're playing at least in the club game, you're you're playing against a lot of other five star recruits. But at your high school, you're not going up against a lot of other five star dudes, and so you can just out athlete everybody. So you don't necessarily need to perfect the 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 fundament, you know, the the, the footwork and those sorts of things. Um, I, I actually, one thing that I, I will have a point that I've wanted to make for, for a long time that I haven't yet, but I can relate to now. Um, it was a huge topic of conversation, the big man development. What is it going to be like after 2012 when Danny Manning left? Um, and I think between Doak and between now McCormick, who I think you got the most out of McCormick you possibly could, I think you got the most out of Landon Lucas you possibly could, um, and you've won a national championship with a big man starring and, and arguably could have been your MOP, um, I do think it's it's been 10 years, and I think if you hadn't breathed the sigh of relief already, it's pretty clear that as great of an impact Danny Man- as Danny Manning had on the coaching the big men, it's pretty clear that that self and I believe Norm Roberts might be in charge mm-hmm. of the big men. Um, it's pretty clear that they're doing a fine job since. And so whatever Uday needs to develop, I think you have a coaching staff who's going if, if he's willing to work, knows how to get him there. Yeah. And I, I I'll make this clear right now. Um I, I am very high on Ernest Uday. Now we'll get into what it could look like as a freshman because there's some uh, stuff I want to go into here with with past freshman centers at Bill Self that maybe kind of hamstrings like what the ceiling is there. But I think long term, whether again, you never know how long guys are going to stay nowadays, whether it's transfer portal or just going to the draft or whatever it is. But if Ernest Duday is around at Kansas for two, three years, I think he's going to turn into a very good player and a very good player that Bill Self likes to play. Um, but OK, back to back to what I was saying with with the freshman centers thing. So uh I looked through from 2003 on to 2022, so every year that Bill Self has been at Kansas. And if you look back and look at freshman centers, there is not a long list of guys 
who played a ton. I want to add, before you get going, keep in mind, everybody, this this all starts with five-star David Padgett getting buried for Jeff Graves, but who was a Juco guy. Funny part of this, David Padgett was one of the few guys to play a ton of minutes, yeah. right, at least comparatively to other freshmen. But he still got... That was and that was but that was back when he's playing two bigs. Yeah, so 0304. This is Self's first year. David Paget, freshman big man. He played 19 minutes per game. He started 19 of the team's 31 games. Uh 0405 was the next freshman. I mean, you could technically say Darnell Jackson was a, a power forward back in the day, but he was he was kind of a center. Um played seven minutes per game. He only started one uh game his freshman season. That same season they also had CJ Giles and Sasha Khan. As freshmen, again, you could like argue is CJ Giles a powerful? I don't know. Um, but CJ Giles played 8.3 minutes per game. He started five games. Sasha Khan played 10 minutes per game and started two games. So again, like not huge numbers there. Then you go to 0708 for the next freshman center, at least like on scholarship. I'm not counting like Matt Kleinman and stuff. Uh, Cole Aldridge is a freshman, played 8.3 minutes per game. He didn't start any games. 0809. I don't know what you want to do with this one if you count Markeith Morris. Markeith Morris, the way we think of him, especially now in the NBA, we think of him as a 3-4. Um, in college, you more think of him as a power forward, but there were lineups he was playing the five. He played with his back to the basket. Not It wasn't unheard of. It, it probably wasn't his primary game, especially his junior year when, when they, he and Marcus both showed out, but he he was not a stranger to playing with his back to the back. No, in 0809, he was, I think, a little bit of the backup to to Cole um, at the center position. I mean, uh, basketball reference has him listed as a center, so I don't know. Do with that what you will. But let's say we do count it. He played 15.6 minutes per game and started seven games. 09, 010. Um, don't know if you'd want to count this one because he was a redshirt freshman and transferred in from another school, but Jeff Withy, mm -hmm. either way, he only played three minutes, didn't start any games. He uh, also didn't uh, – that team, um, he didn't play on that team. He, he wasn't eligible because he was still – he, semester, he had the right. red shirt his first semester. Yeah. 2012-13. So. Again, if you count the red shirt side of things, uh, Jamari Trailer, red shirt freshman, he played 9.6 minutes per game, and he started one game. And again, like I don't even know if he was a center. He more was a power forward, but on that specific team – you could argue with me that he was kind of a center because it was Jeff Withy, Kevin Young, and Jamari Trailer as the three big rotations. So, like, I guess technically he was a center on that team, but again, not double-digit minutes. 2013-14, uh, Landon Lucas played 4.9 minutes per game. Didn't start any games. Joel Embiid that same season played 23.1 minutes per game, started 20 games of the 28. Now, had he been healthy and, and played the rest of the season, I'm sure those minutes per game would have gone up because they were going up as the season went on. He would have started more games, but... Obviously, the injury kept him out of it. Um, the next guy on the list is Cliff Alexander, 2014-2015. He played 17.6 minutes per game. He started six games. Then you go to Czech Diallo, who we mentioned earlier, seven and a half minutes per game, only started one game in 15-16. Um, if you count Carlton Bragg that same season, which, again, probably more of a power forward, but if he did play some center minutes, was still at 8.9 minutes per game, didn't start any games. 2016-17. Mitch Lightfoot finished his career as a center. When he came in, he was more of a power forward. So, again, kind of a slashy where you count him. But even if you do count him as a center, as a freshman, 4.1 minutes per game, no game started. Uh, that same season, Yudoka Azubuki, who was oddly enough starting some games next to Landon Lucas, which, you know, I don't think that would have lasted because it was kind of a spacing nightmare. But he ended up starting six of the 11 games he played in before he was injured. But even then, 
Udoka Azubuki starting all those games, 12.9 minutes per game. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of minutes. 2017-2018, Silvio De Sosa doesn't join till second semester, plays a lot down the stretch. Even then, didn't start any games. He only played 8.8 minutes per game. David McCormick, 2018-2019, he even had to start 13 games because of the Udoka Azubuki injury. He was starting next to Diedrich Lawson a lot down the stretch. He only played 10.7 minutes per game. Jethro Muscadin, who I, I hope he's okay. I, I know there was the car crash, um, and I haven't really I haven't seen heard an, update an update from it. Uh, but he played 2.8 minutes per game, didn't start any games in 2020-21, his freshman season. This past season, you had two freshmen. If you count K.J. Adams, who, again, I think long-term is more of like a four-man, but this year was a center. He only played 4.8 minutes per game, got one start. Zach Clements, 4.9 minutes per game. Got zero starts. So that might sound like a lot of information there. Let me sum that all all up real quickly. The most that any freshman center, any freshman center played for KU and Bill Self was 23.1 minutes per game. So that is your ceiling because that it wasn't just that any center. Joel freaking Embiid, the most unicorn center of Bill Self of of KU basketball since Wilt Chamberlain. In In my mind, the best. To me, the best bas- the best actual basketball player, not college career, but best co- best basketball player easily since Paul Pierce and maybe since Will Chamberlain. Exactly. That guy. At, at played, KU, that is. Played 23.1 minutes per game. So that is your ceiling. No one else even surpassed 20 yeah. minutes per game as a freshman. And of those, I, I went through that whole list of guys. Um, that was 20 players that I listed. Freshman centers at Kansas. Only four of the 20. So one of every five even played 15 minutes or more, and that counts in Markeith Morris. If we take out Markeith Morris and don't count him as a center, as more of a power forward, then it'd only be three of 20. And in fact, only seven of the 20 even played double-digit minutes, even 10 minutes per game. Only seven of the 20 did, and only Joel Embiid, David Padgett, and David McCormick even started double-digit games. Um I think circumstances will force Uday's numbers to be closer to the the ceiling of that than the floor of what you just listed Um, because he really is about it in terms of true centers that this team has. Yeah, and Clemens Um, can play the four. Yeah, but I do. AJ can play the four. What that tells me is unless he shows something really wild uh, early in the season in practice, um you're going to see a lot of Clements start at the five, at least at the beginning of the season, probably through Christmas and maybe um, maybe something changes around conference play when Uday is, has, if he learns, if, he, if he's got a quick, you know, if, if he's got a quick learning curve. But I do think circumstances are going to, and I, I think fans should be prepared, depending on who comes back, if, if Brown and Wilson are both gone, um, fans might want to prepare themselves for, a team around Christmas where you're going, man, they've dropped a couple they probably shouldn't have. Not not that they're going to be terrible. You know, they're not, this isn't the yeah, team. Yeah, they'll still have been okay. They'll yeah, probably win um, the Big 12. <laughs> but I just, I do think that this is a team that, that you could look at um, that that is early on hasn't quite got it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and that Bill Self hasn't quite gotten yet in, in the terms of what are the, what are the best, uh, not just buttons to push, but what's the best rotation of guys who plays the best together? Um, who's doing what I asked them to do the most? Um, so this kind of is probably, I think Uday is going to have the wider ceiling floor than anybody yeah. we've 
said so far. Yeah, so let's get into that. The realistic floor for me is that, you know, like like I said, Sheck Diallo, who was an even higher rate recruit than Uday, and I think if Sheck Diallo would have stayed for sophomore junior season, he probably would have developed into a good I mean, he was a second round pick right. in the NBA. He he's had he's earned like a second contract in the NBA. Like he, he probably would have developed yeah. into something. That's kind of how I, I view the the floor for Uday is that, you know, he could be behind Zach Clements. And what if Cam Martin, by being the more experienced player and having a year in the program, even though it was was redshirting, is more ready to play and, and he's ahead of Ernest Uday. And, and maybe even again, like we go back and forth, like what position is KJ Adams going to play? But he could even be ahead of him to where we really only see Ernest Uday sparingly and he's more of a a future big where it's like, I'm really excited about this guy in the future. It just you know, there wasn't the playing time available for him yeah. this year. I think that's probably the realistic floor. Yeah, I would say the floor is somewhere between, depending on how what you do with K.J. Adams, somewhere between the second and fourth big man mm-hmm. on this team. I think I think for the floor, it'd be third or fourth for the floor. Yeah, well, I'm just I'm I'm making I'm, I'm adding second because I'm, I'm approaching the possibility there could okay, only they, be three. That's fair. That's if you have if you if you if they do something different with KJ, so that's but the, if you're assuming KJ yeah. is there, then yes, I would agree, third or fourth. So that's the floor that he's behind Cam Martin and Zach Clemens, and he's not playing a ton, and he is more of a future big to have for your team. The ceiling though for him is that like again, I'm not going to go past the Joel Embiid mark. That's kind of the ceiling for like 23 he minutes was, per game. You know, uh, that's I, I don't think that's going to happen. Joel, so, Joel Embiid was is the exception to the rule of guys of big men that I could see running with guards. Yeah, so and like, so I'm not putting nobody can be that good. I, I not after ten years. So how it's I view be it for Ernest Duday for the realistic ceiling is that he eventually becomes the starter. Does he's not starting right off the bat, but he eventually works his way into the starting lineup, and once he becomes a starter. Maybe he's averaging 20 to 25 minutes a game. But over the course of the season, because he wasn't originally the starter, when we look at it for the full story at the end of the year, he is in that 15 to 20 minutes per game range. And as far as impact, he is one of the best rebounders, rim protectors, pick and roll, lob finishers in the conference. And we are really juiced about what he could be the following season. That's what I view his realistic ceiling to be. Yeah, I, I'll go with that. Fit, starting fi, ceiling, starting fifty percent. However many games they play, if you know it's another crazy magical season, they play forty games. Three minute um, stations. Three minutes to you. Sorry about that, everybody. That was my fault. Um, but uh, they, I think, yeah, realistic ceiling is however many games they play. He starts fifty percent of them. Minutes somewhere around the fifteen to eighteen minute a game mark. The more games they play, the more those minutes go up. Um, and then he is, um, you're kind of talking, I don't know, six ish, eight ish minutes, a, minute points a game as a ceiling. I don't think he gets to ten. Yeah, it's it's just tough when you're not playing that many minutes. But I, I think that is that is a fair realistic ceiling. A guy that you know could have a lot of impact, but just not because you go through that list. It's just it's tough to play a ton of minutes for Bill Self as a freshman big man. He asks to do a lot, and so I think Ernest today is going to be a really good player for KU. And it could happen right away. It might happen down the road. I just don't see it being a, a situation where he's going to play 25, 30 minutes a game, given that other list of players. All right, he's Adam Dravetta. I'm Derek Johnson. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. David Lesky joins us in about 10, 15 minutes.
We are brought to you by Homefield Apparel. Homefield, a premium collegiate apparel brand out of Indianapolis, has incredibly comfortable, officially licensed apparel with vintage college designs because they dig through the archives of your school to find unique logos, mascots, and moments. The Kansas collection has 14 pieces of apparel, including t-shirts, hoodies, crewnecks, and they are some of the most comfortable things that you will wear, plus they look really cool, and they just released, well, not just, but after the national championship, they released a national championship shirt. Use the code Talk. that's Talk all one word, and you'll get 15%, 15% off your first order. That's right. Code Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off with home field apparel on your first order. Normally joined on a Monday by David Lesky, but the schedule just worked out a little better this week that we bring on David of Inside the Crown here on your Thursday on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Um, I, I don't know what the panic button would insinuate. And I mean, the AL Central is, is kind of down and it's so early in the season and you're not like that far back by, by amount of games. But currently, the Royals have an OPS just over 600. They are in last of the AL Central. Are you close at all to pushing the panic button? And what would that mean for this team? Yeah, that's a good question because I don't entirely know what a panic button would be mm-hmm. right now either. Um, it's tough because, like, you think about this team. I've said this before, but uh, generally, what I've seen is people thought this was somewhere between a 72 and 82 win team. I mean, that's. Anything outside of that is the outliers. Um, and I think what you will find with those types of teams is they have stretches where they go 8 and 15, and then they have stretches where they go 13 and 10. And, you know, it's just kind of nobody's, you know, win one, lose one, win one, lose two, win one, lose one, win two, lose one. You know, it's, just, it's, it's never that order. It's always with a, with a mediocre team, there's highs and lows. Um, so I think, I think can make an argument that you can't prove one way or another <laughs> that this is just a low of a mediocre team. Um, but the problem is, I don't, like I said, I don't know what the panic button would mean because uh, to me, the biggest problems on this team right now are two of the guys who they think are supposed to be the, the stabilizing forces. It's Salvador Perez and Whit Merrifield. And yeah, we've talked about Merrifield quite a bit. You know what, well, you're there. He shouldn't be playing every day. That's for sure. But it's the Royals, so he's play every day until um, I think he loses a limb. But and even then, it depends on which limb. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I, I, Salvi's going to play pretty much every day. He he's played 161 games last year. The only game he didn't play, he was I think he was sick. Does that sound right? I feel like right before the All Star break. Um. So yeah, I mean, there's your biggest issues. If you've got your table setter playing well and your run producer playing well it masks some some issues in the lineup but they're not so all they have is ben intendi and and bobby wood jr lately has been playing well and mj melendez looks like he might be coming up at the right time so you know they've got some pieces but it's just those two guys are are killing the lineup right now um and so i i don't know what pushing the panic button would even do i i think yeah i, I just i just don't I don't, I don't know what the answer is there. I mean, pitching-wise, yeah, feel good about Granke and Keller and probably Daniel Lynch. Um, Chris Bubich, I, he may have already been sent down. I missed it. I don't know. But he's. Uh, I, I don't imagine he will be on the flight to Baltimore. <laughs> so I, I think that, that's, that they're, they're working on that. The bullpen's been fine. I mean, there's 
the biggest thing to me, and even bigger than Merrifield, they got to get Salvi going. They got to figure out a way to get him going. And if that means he sits for three days and clears his head and, and works out whatever issue he has, fine. But whatever it is, they got to get him going. And that's, that's the biggest thing right now. Yeah. And you mentioned MJ Melendez coming up back to back games with a hit for him. I, I was just, I, you know, I've seen the minor league highlights and you see the occasional home run and stuff, but like, I, I'm actually pretty floored by like how, I guess small he kind of looks and slender for a catcher yeah. with that much power. It's just kind of, kind of an interesting build. But nonetheless, um, how impactful? Well, that's why I think he can play other positions too. Yeah, and I guess that's a good point to bring up as as well that he seems pretty athletic. Like it's it's just it's so night and day to what Salvi is, where he is more of this like <laughs> yes. kind of plodding big dude with with all sorts of power. But um, I mean, how how impactful do you think he can be right off the bat? No pun intended. Well, I mean, I said before the season that I thought he, if he and Bobby Witt Jr. were up at the same time, I thought that Melendez would have better numbers through a certain point. Um, part of that is he has a, I think he has a more advanced approach at the plate. Um, he makes more contact, you know, not, not, this is not bashing Bobby Witt Jr. in any way he performed, but Melendez is just a little bit cleaner hitter, I think is the way to put it. Witt has as much power, he's, He's explosive. He's a faster runner. You know all this stuff. But I, I, I thought Melendez could hit the ground running. Again, no pun intended. <laughs> but it's uh, it, it's a it's an approach that I think works at the big league level. Whereas a guy like Witt and probably Nick Prado, honestly, will take a little bit to adjust and 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 alter their game when they get to the big leagues. We've seen it with Witt. He had his first ten games were terrible, and then he kind of started making adjustments and and. He's been pretty good lately. He went hitless yesterday, first time in two weeks almost. So, um, but he's been hitting the ball hard. He has first home run. But Melendez is a guy. I think he can he can help a lineup immediately. He was really struggling in Omaha, and so I was a little skeptical. But you know, kind of everybody told me the approach is there, the line drives are there. He's just not falling in. Um, and, and we've seen it. We've seen a good approach at the plate. I think we saw him work a walk on. Tuesday night, yeah, Tuesday. Um, he had that long fly ball to left. I mean, that's that's a swing. It's an out, and like you don't even think twice if it's Ben and Tendy doing that or, or whoever. But an opposite field swing in your big league debut like that, I thought was a really impressive piece of hitting. It didn't work out for him. Um, so yeah, I think he can be helpful. I also think you know if they do want to press a quote unquote panic button, Vinny Pasquantino is a guy who. I think could have a similar immediate impact because of his approach as well. So, you know, they have some possible answers out there. Um, but yeah, I, I really like MJ Melendez. Uh, what do you think the, um, I guess, long-term plan is there? Like, do you think it is part of the plan that eventually MJ Melendez is going to start kind of eating into a good chunk of catcher innings for Salvador Perez to try to keep him more rested and keep his bat in the lineup at, at maybe a higher level long-term? I would assume so. Yeah, I think um, if you think about what what the what the Royals might see in their long term future, I think you can I think you can make an argument that if Melendez can play third base, which they've I think he's done it ten or eleven times in the minors, um, and every report I've heard is honestly glowing. Not he's not Bobby Witt Jr. over there, <laughs> but but he's solid and he makes the plays. Um, and so I, I think if, if they think he can handle that, then I think you could potentially see a long-term plan with a guy like Emmanuel Rivera playing third against lefties, Melendez at third against righties, 
Melinda's behind the plate some, Melinda's at DH some, Salvi behind the plate some, Salvi at DH some. And so it might end up being like 100 games for Salvi and 62 for Melendez behind the plate, um, or maybe maybe more 50-50. But I, I do think that there's going to be some sort of shared duty there. Um, and I think it fits. I think it fits the roster moving forward. Um, obviously, that depends on Bobby Witt Jr. moving over to shortstop and probably Nicky Lopez at second, or maybe it's Michael Massey coming up who's hitting the cover off the ball. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a good problem to have, to have a lot of options. Um, but, yeah, I think that that's, that's the plan. Um, and, you know, they, they've tried Melendez in the corner outfield, too, which I think makes a lot of sense with his arm and his quickness. So it, there's a lot of possibilities, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to see how they handle it all. We're talking with David Lesky here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Uh, Bobby Witt Jr. hits his first home run of the season. Um, right now, I was looking at, at some projections. I was looking at, like, Steamer's projections. And it has him projected for 17 on the season. Um, Bad X has him at 12. What would you set the predicted total at at this point of the season for uh, for bombs for Bobby Witt? Well, having one in 23 games. <laughs> kind of hurts things because I was thinking he'd be three or four by now and, and not heated up yet. But um, I, I still put him as a 20, 25 home run guy early. I mean, I think, I think eventually he'll be 30 plus. But I think at this point, he, he's shown the ability to, first of all, crush pitches he shouldn't crush. That changeup that he hit out, that's the third home run of the year on a changeup in that spot. I mean, it's, it's not normal for, for a hitter to be able to go down and get that and put it in the seat. Um, so I, it won't surprise me too much if, and I don't know if it's this week or next week or two weeks or whatever, but we're going we're gonna to talk on a Monday, and the next time we talk, he'll hit six more home runs or something like mm-hmm. that. Like that's, that's the sort of power he has, and that, that can really alter the projections quite a bit. So I still think he's 20, 22, 24, somewhere around there. Um, like I said, it hurts that there's only one in 23 because you know, I thought he was more 25 to 30, but it's okay. It's his rookie year. He's getting his feet wet. He's figuring it out. You know, we're seeing offense kind of down uh, around the league right now, and I remember it was it was pretty down early in the season last year, and then as the summer and, and warmer months come around, it, it starts to pick up, and then it's not really a storyline anymore. So maybe the same thing will happen this year, but certainly a different baseball, which is the case this year, and, and a more dead baseball uh, seems to have impacted things with the offense. I, I saw it like Eno Saris of The Athletic was talking a week or so ago about how um, you know fly balls in, in places that already had humidors last year, because that's another thing. A lot of these parks have humidors now that maybe didn't last year. Um, it's down like three feet per fly ball on uh, barreled baseballs, so when you actually like hit it well, versus when you have a humidor and the new baseball, coming in this year as opposed to last year on barreled baseballs it's down 10 feet per fly ball so like i mean pretty pretty drastic differences early on i mean uh like is there a type of hitter or or something that you think is maybe going to be most affected by that and could bobby witt be one of those guys who maybe he would have two or three home runs right now if there were some different circumstances like just last year yeah that's a good question um and i think the other thing that we have to keep in mind, the weather has been terrible everywhere. Like, I think it was yesterday or two days, whatever, a couple of days ago, it was like 44 and rainy in Chicago in May. Like, uh, April, okay. We're in May. Let's get some 70s, first of all. But So I think that's played a part in it, too. I mean, I, I, I can think of off the top of my head um, 
three or four balls in Royals game that I was sure were gone. And I, I think I do a pretty good job of judging fly balls. And they were like caught at the front of the warning track. So it, it feels like, um, I mean, anecdotally, I, I think that, that, yeah, that's, that's a big issue. I think, I think Witt, um, in some ways might be affected because he does, he tailors a swing for, for a long fly ball. I mean, that's, that's the optimum outcome for a hitter is a home run. And, and I think that he might be adjusting a little bit. And we, you know, I, like I mentioned, he started adjusting to make more contact after that 10th or 11th game. Um, and I think that's part of it. I think he's, he's a smart hitter. He's figuring out what, what does and doesn't go out. Um, guy like Salvador Perez is another guy. He's, he, his goal is to hit the ball high and far. And the problem with him, he's not impacted so much because you have to make contact before you're impacted by the, by the different ball. And he's, he's not making much contact right now. Um, but I mean, those are two guys who, yeah, I think could, could find themselves, you know, trying to make, figure out a slightly different approach on the fly. Um, and then you got guys like Ben Intendi, um, to bring him up again. He's, he's probably ball proof. Um, that's a terrible phrase, uh, but you know, we're, we're going to go with it. Um, you know, a guy who hits line drives and doesn't necessarily work for that launch angle. I think that, that he's a player who, who can do well, but yeah, the one thing that, that we should talk about is this humidor combined with the weather might be a bigger problem than anybody's realizing because of the temperature it's set at. And once the temperatures rise above what the humidor is set at and the humidity rises above that, which it really hasn't yet almost, I mean, nowhere pretty much, it, it could actually help the traveling of balls. <laughs> so, um, you know, we, I, I think most, most people thought, okay, we're going to set it at this and then in three weeks it'll be 75 to 80 all the time, pretty much everywhere and all that, blah, blah. Well, it never got there. It hasn't gotten there yet. It will. Um, and so I'm, I'm really curious to see what that distance on barrels looks like, like June to June rather than April to April, because I think it could actually help in places like Kansas city, St. Louis, you know, the humid places. Um, so, you know, it remains to be seen. I, I don't, I don't think just like anything, we won't have a full, full idea until after the season, um, which doesn't help during the season, of course, but it'll help for next year. So yeah, I, 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 I would, I would say that there are some Royals who are struggling partially because of it, but if, if they are struggling because of it, they'll pick it up because of it later. We're talking with David Lesky for a few more minutes here. Uh, I, I have a new game that I want to play with you, David. It is called David and the Unwritten Rules of Baseball. So um, you are going to be the judge, jury, and executioner here for if somebody violated the unwritten rules and what their punishment should be. Jail? Execution? I don't know. You decide. Uh, Harrison Bader threw away Bobby Witt Jr.'s first home run ball into the fountains. What are you doing about it? Straight to jail. Okay. I like it. Straight to jail, at no trial. Good, good. Okay, I'm all on board with that. Uh, all right, that is uh, all I've got for you in that edition of the game. But I'm sure, I'm sure there will be plenty of other uh, opportunities for that to pop up because, come on, it's baseball. We know that will happen. Uh, but before I let you go, one last thing with Adam. All right, David, one last thing. When was the last time you had a funnel cake? Oh, man. Um Gosh, it's been a long time. Yeah, you always smell them, and you're like, "Yeah, I really want that." And then you smell them for another second, and you're like, "I don't want that." Um, <laughs> I, 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 dis- I disagree with the second half. Of, every word of the second half of that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> for me, it's like you the smell. The, the fleeting smell is amazing, 
And then eventually all I can hear is diabetes building. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's probably been it, not that, I guess not that long ago. Was, I think I had one in spring training. I want to say like 2015 maybe. Um, so a long time, not like half my life, you know, like a, a, a quarter to a fifth of my life ago. It's, uh, I don't know. I, I should probably have another one because I think it's an experience that everybody should have every few years at the very least. The fair comes to town every year, Lesky. Get it together. Fine. Let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. He is David Lesky. If uh, Bobby Witt Jr. hits five home runs next week, he will eat three funnel cakes during our appearance. That is accurate. I will. If Bob, yes. If Bobby Witt Jr. hits three funnel or five home runs, if he hits. You know what? If he eats three funnel cakes, I'll hit five home runs. If he hits five home runs, I'll eat three funnel cakes. All right. I love it. Uh, here's David Lesky. <laughs> Check out his work, Inside the Crown. David, appreciate you taking some time and uh, hopping on as always, man. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right. That's David Lesky, Inside the Crown. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. One hour down, two to go. Welcome back. We've got one trivia matchup today, two more tomorrow, and then we'll have our grade eight fully set. RCST trivia brought to you by 23rd Street Brewery, Kurt Geeser State Farm, Pella Windows and Doors, McDonald's of Lawrence, RockChalk.io, CBD of Lawrence, Jayhawk Trophy, Homefield Apparel, and Hawaiian Bros, our title sponsor, 23rd Street Brewery, where you can get their dine-in, carry-out, and catering. They have their outdoor patio where you can enjoy the warm weather. Try the Bill Self mac and cheese, the Haney turkey stack, or any of the great menu items. And don't forget about the 23rd Street Brewery beer, which you can get to go with their Crowlers. Everyone to this point in the tournament has already earned a couple of $25 gift cards to the 23rd Street Brewery, a $20 gift card to CBD of Lawrence, $10 gift card to Hawaiian Bros. That thanks to Kurt Geeser State Farm, a voucher for a free sandwich and a free breakfast sandwich at McDonald's in the local area. And anyone who wins today, whichever one of you two advances, you get a voucher for a free VIP car wash at Mr. D's Auto Wash. Mr. D's located at 1300 West 6th Street. Get your car looking good at Mr. D's in Lawrence. You're going to get $30 of credit for Jayhawk NFTs at rockchalk.io. Get your KU collection started or add to your already existing collection of NFTs that you can buy, sell, and trade with other KU members and be part of the Jayhawk NFT community. $25, again, more gift card for 23rd Street Brewery because every round you advance, you get another $25 gift card to the brewery from that Bill Self Mac and Cheese to a Crimson Fog or Wave the Wheat to wash it down. You get Homefield Apparel gear, super comfy stuff from Homefield Apparel. They've got all sorts of cool KU gear with vintage old logos. You can actually use the code yourself, Rock Chalk Sports Talk. That's Rock Chalk Sports Talk, all one word for 15% off your first order with Homefield Apparel. And that thanks to Pella Doors and Windows. Pella can handle all window and door needs from turnkey replacement to new construction and commercial applications featuring all window and door types from vinyl to fiberglass and a long history of wood and clad products. Pella Doors and Windows located on the southwest corner of 6th and Wakarusa. Final thing you get for making the grade 8, auto entrance into RCST Trivia 2023. All right, with that said... Let's go ahead and reintroduce our contestants here as we get in to our first and only matchup of the day. So we've got the three seed in Justin Nichols taking on the 10 seed in Brandon Robertson. And once again, Brandon was listening to the rules. Justin, um, I think, has a white undershirt on, so we'll give that as a count. He's uh, Brandon's got the road blue uniform on. He is the lower seed, so he's wearing his uh, road uniform. Not sure if that was intentional or not, but if it was, we appreciate it. Um <laughs> well, uh, Justin, you have gone four and one in trivia all time. Um, you 
made the sizzling 16 last year. You're back in the sizzling 16 this year, 12 and one all time on questions five and zero this year. So the only question that you have ever missed among 13 questions, did you win in this very round? Um, have you thought back to that moment last year and getting back here this year and the opportunity that is now in front of you? I'm hoping to hoping to redeem myself this year. Every year you want to make it a little farther, right? Do you remember the question that you went out on last year in this round? I do not. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't recall. Uh, well, Brandon, um, you're in your first trivia appearance and already making it to the sizzling 16, which is uh, very good for a first-time contestant. Nine and two so far in trivia questions. Um, ha- have you uh, felt, I don't know, more prepared this week, less prepared this week than your other matchups or about the same? Uh Honestly, this week a little less prepared um, with month end kind of straddling my two uh, matches. That's a, that's a busy time of uh, the week or the month for me, so I haven't had as much time to prepare. Well, I'm so, curious as, well, as we get to kind of know you guys along this tournament, Justin, where are you um, coming out of in, in this broadcast here? Where, where are you from or living? Oh, I live in Lenexa. And Brandon, what about you? I'm here in Lawrence. All right, so local kid, two Kansas guys taking each other on 310 matchup. The winner of this, whoever wins, everybody is going to be rooting for you. I hope you know that because uh, whoever wins this is taking on Nick Schwert, the villain of the tournament in the grade eight. But you got this one in front of you first before we can uh, worry about that. So we're going to go ahead and cue the music here as we get into our first and only matchup of the day. Sizzling 16, Varsity ST trivia between the three seed Justin and the 10 seed Brandon. And Brandon, as the lower seed, you have the option. Do you want to go first or second? Second has worked for me so far, so let's stick with it. All right, sticking with it. That means, Justin, you are up first into the easy round. Justin, what is the furthest that Danny Manny never made it in the NCAA tournament? National champion. Yep, won it in 1988. All right, Brandon, for you, what's the furthest that Ochai Baji made it in the NCAA tournament? National champion. Yep, this past year, Final Four MOP. All right, those are the... The easy, soft lobs in that you guys both knocked out of the park. On to the medium round. Back to you, Justin. Who was the coach the last time KU did not make the NCAA tournament? Roy Williams. Yep. They didn't make it because they were on a postseason ban. So he couldn't have made it, even if he wanted to. Even if they went undefeated, wouldn't have made it. Okay, back to you, Brandon. Among KU coaches, haven't been a lot of them. Who has the worst record? Uh, James Neesmith. Yep. Not only the worst record, I think he's the only one with a losing record, right? He is, and it still puzzles me to this day why he never stepped in and go, wait a minute, I just came up with a new <laughs> yeah. rule. When, when my team's playing, when my we team get a bonus. shoots, it's worth seven mm-hmm. points. <laughs> yeah, he could have done whatever he wanted. He invented the game. All right, we're going to change up the music. Change up the intensity. A lot of our matchups has ended here in this round, in the uh, hard round of things, in the sizzling 16. Back to you, Justin. Jeff Withy led Kansas with 146 blocks in the 2012-2013 season. This redshirt freshman forward was second on the team with 28 of them. What's his name? 2012-2013 team, you Correct, said? yes. Ben McLemore. 
Not a bad guess when you heard the redshirt freshman. Uh, I don't know. It was the other one. It was the other redshirt freshman. Jamari Trailer was the correct dancer. Second on that team in blocks. I didn't remember him playing that much. I agree, and, and that, that shocked me when we found that. All right, Brandon, chance for you to be the uh, second lowest seed to have moved on to the grade eight. In 2013-2014, Andrew Wiggins made 43 three-pointers, tying him for the team lead with who? Ten seconds. Connor Frankamp. Frankamp certainly went off in March for KU. The correct answer is KU starting point guard, long forgotten Nadir Tharp. Nah. Nah, Tharp. Then uh, things happened off the court. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to We don't stay. talk about the boom boom room. <laughs> no, 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 no. Or uh, wasn't the picture like I don't know. We won't do um, that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Anyway, uh, back to you, Justin. We'll stick in the hard round. You stay alive. The 2012-2013 Kansas team started 19-1, and but then lost three straight games. The first of those three came at home, 85-80, to to what Big 12 opponent and former Big 12 South member? Texas A&M. Mm. Correct answer is Oklahoma State. The backflip. Yep. Marcus Smart with the backflip. Yep. That was the backflip game. That's right. Okay. Back to you, Brandon. The second of those three straight losses, so the first was Oklahoma State. The second was that TCU game, the the infamous Topeka YMCA game. Coming on the road, what team did Kansas lose to for their third straight loss of those three? K-State. <laughs> Correct answer is Oklahoma. They actually took all their frustrations out on K-State two nights later, just completely obliterated the Wildcats at home. All right, we're going to swap back down to the medium round. We'll keep the intense music, though, because this is a barn burner matchup. Winner of this moves on to the grade eight to take on Nick Schwert. Okay, Justin, back to you. What's the furthest that Marcus Morris ever made it in the NCAA tournament? The Elite Eight. Yep. Didn't end well in the Elite Eight. But he did make the Elite Eight. Okay, Brandon, for you, what is the furthest that Perry Ellis ever made it in the NCAA tournament? The Elite Eight. Yep, same for him. Didn't end well. Two very different losses, but both excruciating for KU. All right, we're going to move back up to the hard round. Back to you, Justin. In KU's 2016-2017 season opening loss to Indiana, the starting lineup featured Frank Mason, Devontae Graham, Josh Jackson, Landon Lucas, and what other player? Steve McKayluke. Not a bad guess. The correct answer is Carlton Bragg. Caused some headaches for his coach. That seems like 
hundreds of years ago that Carlton Bragg was in the starting lineup at Kansas, but that was the case there. All right, Brandon, you got the uh, another kill shot here. We'll see if third time the, tar- the charm. With KU down 103-99 to in overtime of that Indiana game, what Jayhawk player attempted the final shot of the game doing so from three-point range? Mason seems like the obvious guess. Um, Ten seconds. We'll, we'll steal his answer and go with feet. <laughs> Greg Dancer is Tyler Self. Been so many fouls in that game that Tyler Self. Tyler Self played real minutes. Played real minutes in that game. That was the uh, notable thing from that game. Outside of KU falling the opener. All right, back down to the medium round. Justin, for you, who led Kansas in free throw attempts? This past season with 164 of them. Go Dave McCormick. Yeah, it was David McCormick. Sometimes you think of the guards or slashers and stuff, but Big Dave accumulated a lot of them. Okay, Brandon, you need this to stay alive. Who led the 2014-2015 Kansas team that lost in the second round to Wichita State in total minutes played for the entire season? Fourteen, fifteen. Yep. Ten seconds. Uh, Perry Ellis. Correct answer is Frank Mason. Frank Mason led the team in minutes per game. So the marathon matchup here comes to a close. Justin, you survive and advance. Did you think you were going home after you missed a couple of those questions? Absolutely. That was pathetic across the board. Uh, we, we both sucked. Uh, <laughs> that was really bad. Uh, yeah, no, I thought I did, and I feel like I got a much easier question on the last one. I feel kind of bad for Brandon on that. Brandon, did you know the answer to the David McCormick one there? I did. So the Frank Mason one coming up a bit short there. Did you just not remember Frank being on that team, or did you just come through with Perry? Uh, yeah, I it was between Frank and Perry and just took a stab. Yeah, that was kind of the idea there that both you can kind of narrow them down to two or three guys and hope you get it right. But just unfortunate, the questions turned out that way for uh, Justin in his favor there. Um, so Brandon, thank you for joining trivia this year and, and your first, you know, time in obviously could have very easily been already on to the grade eight, your first time in, which I think resounding success, your first go around, Justin, you're on to the grade eight. So you said that um, you know, you didn't like your performance here in this one. What are you going to do in between now and your next matchup with Nick Schwartz to try to get ready for the uh, villain of the tournament? I'm going to focus all of my energy on taking Schwartz out. It's going to be, it's going to be a, a, a heck of a battle, and he doesn't know what's coming for him. Uh, well, guys, we appreciate it, and Justin, we'll see you next week. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Good luck, Justin. Well, that was. Uh... I guess you call that a defensive battle. Yeah. Do you agree with Justin? Do you think his was a lot easier than 
than uh, uh, which on the the last the last one, the McCormick and Frank. I thought those were actually pretty similar. Um, because again, it's, no, it's I those... I agree. I guess you could argue maybe the McCormick one if you want to or make the argument that it was easier is just because it just happened. But see, I I, but I don't remember that being. It's not That's like it was thing. a big story. I don't line. remember David McCormick like shooting a ton of free it, throws. It, like you could have argued Christian Brown or Jalen yeah, Wilson. Like I could see it being. And with that one, it's it's Frank or Perry. right? Yeah, exactly. It's and one of those I, two. I could see the the McCormick one being easy or being easier. If it were a story like I like think they're starting, both like, like one and two or starting one and three in guesses. like January, it was like and here's David McCormick who's leading. You know, like yeah. it wasn't a storyline throughout no, the year. Not at it all. It just happens to be a. a I think a, that's a, one where because Justin knew it. Like we say this all the time. If you know it, it is inherently easier, easier yeah. than the other question. And so because they knew it, it's easier. But in my mind, like both of those have the same process. So I don't know. I I, I feel bad whenever somebody loses or misses a question. I just. I don't view it as like that it was way different, in my opinion. But I, I don't know. Other people might disagree. No, I, I I get the mindset. It was both both could have been like um you know, for this one you could have thought maybe it's Christian Brown who slashes to the basket a lot. Ochai Jaylen does as, a lot. As, as Ochai's much, just your best player. Your best player and, and as as you know, he probably had and maybe because he was so good, he had the most are you kidding me? Misses mm-hmm. on, at the, from the free throw line. Now he was great. I'm, I'm not going to turn this into criticizing no. him, but I'm saying that you you have memories of like that was kind of a storyline throughout the year. Was as good of a three point shooter as he was. He was more kind of in the low 70s um, as a free throw shooter. So yeah, you had options, and then yeah. you had options from that 14 15 team. Yeah, again, because I think you probably get between Frank and and Perry, and you know I, I would get why you guessed Perry because he was the best player probably on that team but also if you think yeah. about it like if you think it through Bill Self always plays his point guards a lot a of lot. minutes yeah, you know what I mean so I think those are fair no, I, I, I thought fair. they were fine questions but yeah all right that is our trivia for the day good luck to Justin to try to take down Nick in the gray day thank you to Brandon for joining we hope to get him back next year he did uh, very well in his first edition of RCST trivia and uh, some cool prizes headed Justin's way as we mentioned voucher for a free car wash to VI uh, Mr. D's auto wash home field apparel gear thanks to Pella $30 of credit for Jayhawk NFTs at rockchalk.io, $25 gift card to the brewery, and auto entrance into trivia for 2023. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam DeVette. I'm Derek Johnson. Around the world, next. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com. And we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Welcome back to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Adam Dravetta. I am Derek Johnson. We're going to be joined by Zach Boyer at the top of the 5 o'clock hour. Talk some KU football. We will have Ike Opara of Sporting KC 2 on at about 5.25, and uh, go to at RCST1320 if you want to win some free tickets to the match on Sunday. We've also got a game coming up here, but before we get to that, around the world with Adam. Well, don't ever do that again. <laughs> uh, first, we're going to start in Oklahoma. This is actually a story uh, that I, I didn't plan on sharing, um, so I'm not going to get into much detail, but uh, apparently somewhere in an apartment complex in Oklahoma... Uh, lightning struck and the toilet exploded. I showed so, you the picture. Yeah, this is not hyperbole of just saying, oh, I blew so, up the toilet. Like, um, no. I don't have many more details because I didn't plan to share that story. It just came up before the show started. So if Crazy. you want to just hop on Google. Well, and- no, I, I always thought that was a wives' tale that like, oh, the you know lightning strike if you're in the shower, if the toilet with the toilet water. Like, no. No. That's real. Yeah. 
Um, so Scary anyway, stuff. we're but but for our first real story, we're going to stick in Oklahoma. Oklahoma City. This is from the Associated Press. A Republican lawmaker who wanted to refer to him by a, his nickname on the ballot can't use that nickname. The Oklahoma Election Board has ruled. What's the nickname he wanted to go for? I'm assuming it's some sort of profanity. No, no, no. It's not. No, it's it's because he's never been called like no. There's no real record of him going by that nickname. Before. Oh, it's not like you know. William going by Bill. Yeah, so but it's not it's not profanity. No, it's not no, no. Like you no. have to call me Mr. Bleeping Bleeping. No, no, no. It's not profanity know. at all. I have no idea. He on the ballot wants to be referred to as the Patriot. I'm guessing because he's weird. The Patriot. The Patriot. He wants you're voting for this person, that person, or hey, there's only one the Patriot. the Patriot, and it's Mel Gibson, fantastic movie. And you don't want to be compared to him. Um that was a good movie though. Uh, but yeah, so this kind of weirdo wants to be called the Patriot, which all I can think about is that scene in Step Brothers where they first meet each other. He's like, "You have to call me Dragon." <laughs> um, like I seriously, is this guy eight years old? He's a grown ass man. And he excuse me, to, Mr. The Mr. The yeah, Patriot. Excuse me. Um, yeah, a grown ass man wants to be called the Patriot on a ballot. The board decided Monday that the term limited state rep Sean Roberts, which is given birth name can still run for Oklahoma Labor Commissioner, but he can't refer to himself by that nickname on the ballot. Oklahoma election rules allow a candidate to use a nickname if it's a name the candidate is generally known by or who does business using the nickname. Robert's opponent, Republican Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne, says there's no evidence Roberts is known as the Patriot. I hate this man so much. I don't even know him, and I hate him. I don't. She pointed out in her petition to the board that Roberts has appeared on the ballot in seven successive elections Hmm. as Kevin Sean Roberts or (laughs) Sean Roberts. You think he just woke up in the middle of the night and went, whoa, I got an idea. I mean, it's, They'll it's call actually, me the Patriot. It actually is not a bad idea because if he, on the ballot, it said the Patriot. Well, golly, I'm going to vote for him. Right. I no, like Patriot as much as next guy. Seriously. Seriously. It's like, I don't know any of these names, but this guy is like the Patriot. Like, uh, you know what I mean? So, like, I actually don't blame him for trying, but also, like, if he wanted, he really could make this happen. Not in terms of that. If he just says, my name is Patriot Sean. Yeah. Like, that's fine. Name, Honestly, yeah. it probably is. Uh, could Tom Brady run for public office as the Patriot? If Tom Brady ran for it as Tom Brady, well, why would he? Everybody knows his name. Yeah. It's Tom Brady. He That's would just win. Point. What if Michael Jordan ran for public office as 45? No. I don't think a number would get it done. All right. Uh, Again, all- just run as Michael Jordan. So Everybody yeah. knows who you are. So anyway, that uh, that's what we're starting off with. We're moving on. Uh, this is from the Associated Press as well. We're going to Jerusalem. A bomb scare set off scenes of panic in Israel's airport after an American family showed up with what that they had taken as a souvenir. They wanted to bring back as a souvenir. They weren't allowed to. I can't think of anything. Um, an unexploded artillery shell. Oh, I don't yeah, know. Definitely would not. I don't know yeah. if you're much of a world traveler, Derek, but they're sensitive to those sorts of things in airports. Uh. Videos circulating online showed passengers ducking for cover, running and screaming at the departure hall of Ben Gurion International Airport on Thursday. The airport authorities and security officers sounded an alert when they discovered the unexploded shell. At least one person was injured after trying to run on a conveyor belt, it said. 
Normal operations resumed after the shell was safely removed a short time later. The family was released after questioning. Okay, so that's actually, like, very scary. If, if you're at the airport, think about this. Think about this, because... Um, I would... I would, I would wet myself. Yeah, you see somebody, uh, like, they're getting checked at baggage claim, or not baggage, uh, security, security, and they pull out, like, what looks like a bomb. Yeah. Like, you would think that this is, like, a terrorist attack, or, like, they are trying to yeah. blow up the airport yeah. or something like that. And then you have the added uh, situation where, where I, I think most people probably speak English th- through the airport at... You know, in, in Israel expect, and stuff, but like, yeah. you have the other added aspect of this of like the person, like, like you probably, uh, some people who are there can't speak English and understand what is going on. Yeah, you know what I mean. They just hear the alarm. Um, Israel captured. They they got it from a a, a region called the Golan Heights. Uh, they captured Israel captured it from Syria during a war in 1967, and the area saw heavy fighting during that war and another war six years later. Areas known to contain exploded munitions or unexploded munitions are clearly marked and fenced off, which means these weirdos jumped the fence to go grab this thing. Um, Today, this area is a major tourist draw with wineries, popular hiking spots, and a small ski resort, which is opened with a short season. Uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett announced plans to boost Israeli, Israeli settlement in the territory in December, so it's kind of a touristy area now. So they went and checked out some wineries, went for maybe a nice hike, and I'm sh- this had to be the dad. There's not a doubt in my mind the dad went, kids, let's bring that bomb back. That'll look great in my man cave. I I don't. Okay, so clearly that I I don't think the family though knew that I it mean, was. They lose their mind if you have fruit from the other co- yeah, the country. Yeah, I don't know what they were thinking, but I, there's no way the family knew that it was not like that. It was just a non-exploded. It doesn't right? matter. No, I'm just. I, I of course it doesn't matter. Of course it doesn't matter. I'm just saying like there's no way like the person probably thought it was an empty artillery shell, right? And again, like it doesn't matter. You're not getting that thing on the airplane, <laughs> nor why do you need it? Like, you think anybody's gonna come to your house and just be like? Hey, why do you just have a random artillery well, shell sitting in where the coffee table's supposed to be? I'm a bit of a history buff. You remember the Israeli-Arab War in 1967? Yeah. No. Oh. Well, you know the Golan Heights region of Israel? Uh-uh. <laughs> anyway, that thing didn't blow up, so uh, we took it home with us. Uh, were you in that war? No. Do you know anybody who was? Nah. I just like things that might have blown up. But they didn't. Um, anyway, it's a good thing it didn't blow up on them. I, I would mean, imagine it's probably could probably confirm it a dud if it hasn't exploded since 1967. There's a war or a war. There's a film, a very different word from mm. war. There's a film um, called "The Sum of All Fears" with Ben Affleck and Morgan Freeman, in which this guy sells. He, he finds himself uh, an unexploded nuclear weapon. Uh, and uh, digs it up and tries to sell it on a black market, and they, they explode it in Baltimore. Um, anyway, big deal. Mm. Um, there was it was a movie though; it didn't actually happen. Um, we're going to move on now. Also from the Associated Press, Jacksonville, Florida, a Florida man was sentenced Tuesday to two years in federal prison for using his twins' brother's stolen identity to obtain tens of thousands of dollars in military veterans benefits so he said hey wait a minute he looks like me i like the idea of getting money for not doing anything i'm gonna take his id how did they catch him 
Uh, let's read on. Because doesn't, like, don't twins have the same, it's not the same, like, DNA, but, like, in terms of, like, you could very easily forge yourself as your twin, I feel like. I'm surprised this this type of crime doesn't happen more. Maybe it does. Maybe, that, I don't know. I mean, Do they only, have the same DNA? Uh, no, right? I, I, I don't, it's probably similar. I, I okay, anyway. Um, Get a scientist. I know. I can show. tell you, fraternal twins don't. I guess it's possible identical twins do. Um, my nephews are fraternal twins. They don't look the same, so they couldn't steal each other's military benefits. Mm. Also, neither of Shame. them have military benefits. They're nine years old. Uh, Wayne Bowen, sixty-four years old, was sentenced in Jacksonville Federal Court, according to court records. He pled guilty in January to aggravated identity theft. What's aggravated identity theft? Uh, you guess, steal someone's identity and you're really you're mad. Really when you're really angry do it. about yeah. it. Give me my cut, my brother's <laughs> money. I mean, my money. He must also pay $63,773,000 in restitution. Something tells me Wayne doesn't have that money mm-hmm. on him. According to a plea agreement, Bowen used the name, social security card, and military discharge papers of his estranged twin brother in 2014 to apply for federally subsidized housing benefits intended for. In um, indigent, indigenous? In, no, indigent military veterans. Wow. I don't know. The program was administered by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, did you ever watch the television situational comedy Friends? Yes. So there's the episode where Phoebe Buffay has her strange twin Ursula, who apparently um, she found out early in an episode that her twin sister had been starring in adult films um, and using Phoebe's name as her actress name and so everybody thought that it was Phoebe so to get revenge on her I guess Phoebe just used her uh, she just was like okay yeah fine I'm Phoebe and I'm gonna cash all these checks so (laughs) anyway um, this is different this guy stole his money from his, his military benefits Based on Bowen's fraudulent use of his brother's identity, the VA provided him with $32,434 in medical services. Uh, HUD, which is Housing and Urban Development, provided him with $18,905 in housing subsidies. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture funded $12,434 in nutritional benefits for him, officials said. Bowen's twin, who lives in another state. Ooh. It's, it's not well organized. No. He doesn't even live there. Confirmed that he did not apply for any of the benefits and that he never gave permission or gave Bowen permission to use his name. Um, here's the thing. I um, can say this about the government. It's not super efficient in some ways. What I can tell you is if you try to take money from it, they're going to get you. They are really good at finding. They may not catch you right away. But if you take money that is not meant for you off the United States <laughs> government, they will get you for that. There's a lot of crimes you can get away with. Stealing money from the U.S. government ain't one of them. Let alone the military. They find, Yeah, they are a high priority in their world. We're going to move on uh, to Texas. This is from the UPI. Researchers who came upon a 40-mile stretch of Texas beach twice a week have been using social media to document from dis- some discoveries. What are they finding? Uh, i give you a hand. It's nothing living, like nothing died oh. in the process of this. So gold. That's good. Lots and lots of gold. Dozens of creepy dolls. Yeah. I'd rather have the gold. Yeah, yeah, me too. 
Jace Tunnell, director of the Mission Air, uh, Ar- I can't pronounce that word, Reserve at the University of Texas Marine Science Institute, said his team surveys about 40 miles of Gulf Coast Beach. At the first off, this story spelled it Gulf Coast Coast Beach. Mm-hmm. So figure it out. At the reserve, twice a week, said they have frequently been finding dolls of various types that were given a creepy aesthetic by their time in the water. Well, all dolls are scary, even if they don't spend time in the water. We're actually doing scientific work, but the dolls are a perk. No, they're not. Tunnel told <laughs> McClatchy News. Uh, let's move on. I'm turning the page. Hang on. Give me a second. Give me a second. Tunnel said the follower, uh, the fo- uh, the count on the... Uh, Reserve Facebook page has skyrocketed since he started sharing photos of the disturbing dolls. They are terrifying. I'll, I'll, I, I saw a picture. Um, he said about 30 dolls have been found since he started posting the photos. The creepiest ones are the ones that have lost all their hair. Hey, shut up. I've lost all my hair. <laughs> That's not why I'm creepy. The first one we had was found. Oh, I should have read through this. Uh, it, let me just say it was an, the first one they found was an adult doll. Um, uh, what do you mean an adult doll? I mean doll? a doll you'd find at a specific... Ah, I see. You'd, you'd purchase at a specific venue on 23rd okay. Street here thought, in Lawrence. Yeah. Um, I posted a picture of it and didn't realize that that's the type of doll it was. We got a lot of followers on the page after that. So, yeah, a bunch of scary and sometimes other dolls. Uh, yeah, I can't deal with dolls. Dolls freak me out. Have you ever like had to stay the night somewhere where there yeah. was, you were in a room with yeah. just like a bunch of... I have, and yeah, it was one of the worst night sleeps of my life. Yeah, it's awful. Because you wake up even for a brief moment and you just see something staring at you. Yep. You're like, wait, what the? And then you like realize what it is, but it's just, it's very uncomfortable. Um, I, yeah, yeah. That would I, be one of the worst things to collect, in my opinion. Like, I don't have a problem, whatever you want to collect. Do you but, like, collect things? Uh, I mean, I, I make to lists. a small extent, like sports memorabilia, but like. I, I see, I make lists. I love mm-hmm. lists. Um, I don't really collect things i guess the, the most i've ever collected is when i go places i like to bring uh like i've been i've been very lucky in my life that i've i've spent uh i've been able to travel to all sorts of different um fun places i like to bring back some sort of sand or soil dirt from where i've been i'll, I'll have that um like i've got dirt i've got sand from omaha beach i don't know if this was legal but i took a little bit of uh dirt from the uh arena area of um the Coliseum in Rome. <laughs> Probably not. Um, yeah. I didn't step over any fences to get there. So I think it anyway. But my point is that's kind of the most of the things I would collect. I'm more of a list maker than a than a person who, who collects things, but certainly not dolls if I were to start getting like you know, maybe if I retire I'll just make models and, and collect those, but not dolls. He's Adam Rivetta, I'm Derek Johnson. That's around the world with Adam. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on KLWN. Depend on it. Joined now by Zach Boyer, who is the KU football beat writer, does other work as well with the LJ World and at KUSports.com. Uh, so, Zach, thank you for making your uh, RCST debut today. And uh, I wanted to talk KU football, obviously, with you. Uh, KU has landed a couple of recruits or commits or transfers, however you want to place, place it. Uh they get Doug Emelian, which I believe how you pronounce it. He's a receiver transfer yep. from Minnesota. So what is KU getting in this Emelian kid in terms of impacting the team, how long he can be with the team, and all those sorts of things? Yeah, well, Doug's kind of an interesting case. 
because he was a pretty highly regarded player coming out of high school uh, in Fort Lauderdale and didn't really get the chance to play much at Minnesota. And so he enrolled at Minnesota for the 2020 season and redshirted and then only played in two games last year, uh, only a total of 19 snaps overall on offense, didn't catch a pass, didn't have a ball thrown his way. So he was of the mindset of he wants to play. You know, when I talked to him, he knew that kind of just in his mind, he's got this idea that, you know, you only get so much time playing football once you get to be his age. And whether or not he can make a pro career out of it is up to him, really, in a lot of ways. But he didn't want to sit around waiting his time in Minnesota anymore because Minnesota has players like Chris Altman-Bell coming back for a sixth year who have been very proven. And they're also, they found an identity in recent years as a running team. So their passing game um, hasn't necessarily been exactly what he had thought of or hoped. So he wants to find somewhere where he can make an impact. He found Kansas. He had a pretty good hookup and that his college roommate at Minnesota was Kai Thomas from Topeka, who just transferred to Kansas uh, back in January. So he got a little intel on the side and found out what's going on. So uh, in terms of opportunity, it, it seems like it's there. You know, he seems to think that uh, he's being given plenty of opportunities to start and catch a lot of balls. It's going to be hard for him having missed spring practice and not knowing the offense, having to learn that in August. Uh, but certainly there's a chance there with Kwame Lasseter gone and with a couple other guys who could have competed for snaps having chosen to transfer as well. So the balls will probably be there for him. And, and like it is really for the first time uh, throughout his college career, he'll have a chance to actually go out and get them. Yeah, and I think that's kind of interesting you bring up him being able to compete for a starting spot and everything because that was you know, something Lance Leipold said in earlier in the offseason that they felt like they were almost over-scholarshiped at receivers. So that has to be pretty telling that, and I know you lose some guys via the portal there as well, so it maybe opens some stuff up, but for them to take on someone at that position has to mean that they feel like this guy can can be pretty impactful for them, right? Yeah, so from what I've heard is he's basically kind of, as soon as he put his name into the portal on April 12th, they were all over him because they figured he could be an impact player for them. But you're right. I mean, you look at what they what they were supposed to go have going into the spring was 16 wide receivers. You know, some of those guys are not scholarship guys. Um, but, I mean, after last season, they lost six of those guys, right? Um, they've lost some, some quality depth players in, in Kyler Pearson and Tristan Golightly and uh, Magic Rector was somebody who, you know, uh, talking to Kwame last year, right before he was drafted last week, he he thought that was kind of a surprise that Magic chose to leave because he hadn't been given an option and he thought he was a pretty good player. Uh, so there's there's some attrition there, right? There's some guys choosing to leave the program for reasons that, you know, they always vary. Um, but you went from a situation where you had 16 guys in the roster, you've lost, uh, I guess, four of them now going into the season. Um and so there's an opportunity there for, for at least somebody who has some talent, um, you know, some, some quality high school accolades, some good film from high school to fall back on to, to add to the mix. So, uh, yeah, I mean, is it uh, maybe – I wouldn't say it's necessarily adding somebody at a position where they don't need somebody because they have so many unproven players. You have to remember that their leading receivers coming back caught 27 balls last year, which – is not nothing, but it's not substantive. So there should be an opportunity for him to make his mark, and uh, he seems to be all about taking that. We're talking with Zach Boyer of the LJ World here. The other pickup that KU added was Flavio Gonzalez, which a uh, great name, first of all, but uh, offensive lineman <laughs> from Butler Community College. Is this a kid that 
they're bringing in to, to try to make an immediate impact on, on depth on the line? Is there an idea that he could redshirt in there? What do you think they're kind of getting in, in Flavio? Yeah, well, he does have a redshirt year available, which is unique for a guy who did play three years of community college. And, I mean, even that in itself is unique, right? You don't get three years of community college from a lot of people, especially without a redshirt. But that's just, you know, the coronavirus uh, eligibility rules that we're all dealing with and looking at and trying to assess everybody's uh, future going forward here. But um, Gonzalez, uh, probably not going to be somebody who's an impact player. Uh, I think a redshirt might be on the table. Um, he's somebody who comes from Butley Community College, uh, started off at a community college in California, thought he wasn't going to get a chance there or get recruited there, so he moved out here to Kansas uh, for year two and year three, uh, originally from Tucson, Arizona, uh, so grew up in the backyard of the University of Arizona. Um, but I think, you know, given what uh, Kansas has coming back on its line, four of five starters, Malik Clark, the only guy who has left, uh, and he's going to begin his NFL career this weekend trying out for the Chiefs. But I think they've got a pretty good four. Um, he might get a chance to mix in, maybe to compete for that left guard spot. Um, but I think what they're looking at with him is somebody who can fill in the depths, um, fill in uh, maybe a, a seven, eight, nine role on the offensive line, maybe a primary backup job. And that stuff won't all get figured out till, till probably close to the end of August. But he's not necessarily somebody that they're looking at to come in and compete right away. Um, he's somebody who they think that can have a little bit of project on his hands as he gets used to the speed of the game playing in the Big 12. Well, it is kind of interesting that um, both transfers that they brought in in, in those guys in Gonzalez and Emelian, that means that you know you could have two or three years with Gonzalez, that you could have whatever three or four years or whatever that would be with, with Emelian in there. Do you think that is a targeted approach for KU to, to bring on transfers that, you know, the guys that they brought on back in um, kind of the, the, the early portion of the winter spring period, maybe those were more of the immediate impact guys and the guys we're going to see now are more of the guys that, yeah, they could have an immediate impact, but the beauty of it is that they can be here for a while and, and kind of develop in the system. Well, I think that's always kind of the bonus, right? If you can get a guy who's going to stick around for longer than one year, get him in your system and get him to develop the way you want him to within what you're asking to do on offense, defense, or even on special teams, I think that is certainly a bonus. I think back, if you look at the guys in, in December, um, players like Kai Thomas, you know, he has, I believe, three years of eligibility left. Um, so that's, you know, certainly a start. Uh, you've got guys like uh, Eric Gilliard from UCF, middle linebacker who has two years of eligibility left. These guys all have a little bit of time to continue playing, and that's certainly you know a positive for them in that they're not going to be right out the door and you're not going to invest all the time having, having a stopgap starter. Um, but I think it's also just a product of what they can get their hands on. I, I think you know what they needed to, to balance the scholarship numbers, to balance the leadership, to balance that experience, they needed older players. And so I'm, I'm, I'm certain that, if there was somebody who came available who they knew could make an instant impact and he only had this one coming season to play, they would have still given him some thought and they still would have taken him if the opportunity was there. So I think because they skew so young, so ridiculously young, like 70 players or more, I did the numbers a while back. I can't remember off the top of my head, but there's more than 70 guys on a team um, that have uh, at least three years of eligibility left. And so that creates for a very odd situation when it comes to roster construction. And honestly, looking at the rules anymore and the way the transfers are, roster construction is bizarre anyway from what we're used to. Um, but when you have such a young team, you need older guys. Um, so it's, it's certainly a plus to have these guys. With Doug Emelian, you mentioned, um, he does have four years left, right? And that's a huge thing for him if, he, if he's able to stick it out and, and play. So 
um, youth, but youth with experience, and then youth with experience who can then use that experience to be a leader or benefit the team uh, if possible they need it. On the topic of scholarships, I, I saw a report, um, might have been Dennis Dodd who tweeted it out, uh, they're looking into changing the rule of, of limited number of scholarships per year, which it's been a couple years since that's really been a huge issue at KU, but it was at one time an issue. Do you know mm-hmm. anything on that? Is that is that most likely going to change and they're just going to set it at a hard 85 scholarships and then you can add as many as you want in a given year? Yeah, so it looks like there's some momentum toward rectifying this this scholarship situation and that's you know across the football bowl subdivision level um you know kansas is not the only one figuring that it's in a roster pinch right it's got five or so spots to fill with open scholarships which is not as bad as it possibly could be there are schools out there that need eight nine ten eleven guys uh and you're not going to find quality players or players that are going to fit at your level by the time you need to fill those scholarships So it's certainly something that's gaining momentum. I think it's not impossible that that would change later on. I just happened to see, uh, just skimming quickly, um, that the PAC-12 commissioner was going to try to lobby Congress to try to get some kind of of hand on this, um, you know, all this player movement. But if you look at what's going on here, I mean, you've got a situation where, 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 where teams are shorthanded because they're losing players, can't get players in who they feel like are good enough for just the ability to take the field, let alone be a competitor. And uh, what you're left with is, is situations like what Kansas has, where it has a bunch of scholarships that it has to get rid of, and not get rid of necessarily, but use, right, for, to balance out the roster. And you also have to remember that it can't use those scholarships on high school players. You can't bring high school players in with the extra numbers. So if you can get more than 25 in a year, which, I mean, going back to I started covering college football in 2005. I mean, this was a discussion then that, that they wanted to do away with these roster limits because of what was happening uh, to teams and how they weren't able to restock if they needed to. Um, I, I don't think that there's going to be a whole lot of coaches out there, given the landscape of the world right now, who are not going to think that this is a, a, a good idea. It's just interesting. It'd be like, imagine in basketball, if we were like, you could only bring on three guys a year. Like, no, it's just, hey, you can just fill up when whenever you want. Do you think that would have a bigger impact on KU recruiting freshmen, or do you think it would have a bigger impact on, on KU bringing in more transfer players? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, what needs to happen first before that becomes a legitimate discussion, I think, is for them to get their numbers up and to get their their, their classes evened out, right? I mean, if you're bringing in classes with um, – countless freshmen who are just going to redshirt and not going to play in a lot of situations. That's a good thing. But I think for Kansas, they just can't afford that at this point. So um, I think for a lot of schools going forward, they're going to look at trying to increase their number of of high school players. Cause if you look at it too, these schools, if if given the chance, they would go after older players because it's it's free agency at its finest, right? There's a proven commodity playing at the college level and you know what you're going to get and you're not going to get that maybe ever, but at least till two or three down the line, years down the line with most high school players. Um, so I think a lot of that is going to be um, just determined on how they structure these limits 
how they structure who is going to fill scholarships and when and and, and even signing days and, and transfer portal windows, right? Because there's no real I mean there is, but there's 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 momentum toward limiting the player's ability to go into the transfer portal to just a couple times a year. Um, there's just so much and, and, and like the NIL stuff even more, there's just so much that needs to be regulated because these are the unforeseen consequences of passing this legislation and not really understanding how it was going to necessarily affect every team. So, yeah, it, it's certainly worth watching because it will have a direct effect on how Kansas builds its team. As we await more transfer portal additions, because I'm sure there's more coming with the amount of guys that they lost and, and are allowed to bring in here, uh, do you view a, a certain position or, or multiple positions as maybe being the most ripe for KU to try to add immediate impact talent to right now? Yeah, I know they're going to add a defensive lineman, or at least want to add a defensive lineman. Whether they're going to is not, you know, necessarily a guarantee. But you know, they need a they need another another defensive end, another pass rusher, um, somebody who they'd like to see have a little bit more experience. I think offensive line is still not out of the question. Um, I, I think for sure they'd like to get a safety. Um, I know that that's that's one of their priorities. If you're looking at um, you know, what they've got coming back. Um, they, they definitely want to get a safety in there and they've offered a lot of safeties lately, especially who are in junior college. Um, so that's a priority for them. So I think they've identified, and I say, I think, I know that they've identified their needs. Um, I know that they want that safety. They want an offensive lineman. They certainly want to rush defensive end. Um, whether or not they can get somebody who's, who they believe is capable of filling that role, um, and making an impact right away is still, it just remains to be seen because look, we're we're mid-May. Uh, players who were disgruntled and wanted to leave, or just had some reason to leave their old school or another, probably did so about a month ago. So uh, the, the clock is ticking on a lot of these situations. Well, he is Zach Boyer. Zach, before we let you go, my co-host and producer Adam, we do a thing with our guests called "One Last Thing with Adam." Adam, take it away. All right, Zach. One last thing: Have you ever had a steamed cheeseburger? Yeah, actually, I have. Yeah, uh, and I remember eating it and not thinking it was much different than a regular cheeseburger. Huh. <laughs> what is a steamed cheeseburger? That's exactly what it sounds uh, like. It, it kind of originated yeah. in, is it Meriden or Meridian? Meriden. Meriden? It's Meriden, Connecticut, yeah. And there's a place, and I forget the name of it because it's been it's, it's uh, either, more than 10 years since I've lived there. It's either Tad's uh, or Ted's. Ted's, yeah, yeah, Ted's, yeah. Ted's right. lunch, and, I think, uh, or Ted's restaurant. Yep. Yeah. That's it. And I went there once just for that reason, just to see what it was all about with a friend of mine who didn't live anywhere near here. Um, and she also was not impressed. So, <laughs> hey, sometimes it's just how it is. Yeah, I think the uniqueness of, of the method of cooking, which to, to answer your question, Derek, it's exactly what it sounds like. They, they steam the meat and then they steam the cheese to, to melt the cheese. And it's just it's a different method of cooking huh. than most places. I'll but. stick with the grill or the stovetop. All right, well, uh, well, Zach, appreciate you uh, for, for making your RCSD debut today, and, and I think we plan on having you on uh, a lot more down the road. So uh, thanks, man. Yeah, thanks to you both. All right, that was Zach Boyer, LJ World, KUSports.com. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk. Coming up next, Ike Opara, assistant coach for Sporting KC2. We're doing a ticket giveaway. Uh, we're going to officially give those tickets away tomorrow on the show here on RCST, but uh, we've got it started on our Twitter account, at RCST1320. You can retweet the tweet and have a chance to win some tickets to the game on Sunday. With Adam Dravetta, I'm Derek Johnson. You're listening in on FM 1017 and 1320, KLWN, depending on it. Would you like to get involved in sponsoring Rock Chalk Sports Talk or the Best of RCST podcast? How about getting involved in some KU action or local high school sports? 
You can reach out to us, djohnson at gpmnow.com. That's djohnson at gpmnow.com, and we'll see what we can do to help out your business and get involved here in local sports. Joined now by Aiko Para of Sporting KC2, assistant coach with SKC2, playing again at home this Sunday at 1 o'clock for a day game. I think this is the uh, first day game at home. All the other matches have been um, at night. So it's 1 o'clock on Sunday, taking on Salt Lake City. Uh, Ike, you guys fell 2-0 last week to, to Dallas on Sunday, but obviously you had to deal with playing a man down for the end of the first half and the entirety of the second half. I know... The result wasn't what you hoped for there, but how did you think you responded even playing at a disadvantage for a big chunk of that game? Yeah, I think the guys, they showed a lot of spirit and competitiveness. Uh, you know, we obviously got the, the red card uh, right before halftime, and, you know, our speech going into halftime as we were down a, down a goal was, to, hey, let's stay in the game. Let's try to keep it at one goal the longer we can stay in the game. Um, you know, the, we'll get an opportunity or, or two, uh, even being that down a man. And when we came out to start that second half, the first 15, 20 minutes, you probably wouldn't have known we were a man down for, for large significant times because we were trying to be on the front foot as much as we could. Um, and, you know, we had opportunities, half chances to potentially get a goal, which is kind of what you're looking for when you're down a man, but, uh, we just weren't able to, to, to squeeze one out. Um, uh, what went wrong for for the defense that uh, maybe you're looking to shore up this week headed into this ma- this week's match? To be honest, I know the the last couple of score lines, especially Vancouver. Um, you know, we lost four one. It's tough because we we truly didn't give up that many uh, opportunities, especially that game, and and more so even the last home game versus Dallas. I mean, uh, I saw the expected goals against them. We had a higher expectancy goals. Uh, than Dallas, and we got a man for half the game. You know, I don't, I don't even think they hit one. So we actually kept them at bay. Um, you know, I think they only had seven shots, four on goal. And like I said, half of that game was, um, you know, we were down a man. So from the defense perspective, honestly, there's not a whole lot that we're, we're going to touch on because I think that they're applying all the things that we, we are uh, we're, we're discussing, we're, we're going over, and they're actually executing very well. It's just the attacking side of the things that we've got to really start to – um, see if we can score. To be honest, um, uh, yeah. Is is that you know? Does that kind of wear on the defense at all when when the offense isn't putting goals through the back of the net? That you know, it does become a little bit more frustrating, a little more difficult to try to reserve those clean sheets. Yeah, one thousand percent. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, it's a little bit of human nature. You know, the defense, as well as they performed, um, even over the course of the last handful of games. You know, when you're seeing your strikers or your forwards or whoever gets the opportunity and not, you know, capitalize on, on golden opportunities, it, it, it makes you a little bit frustrated um, as a unit um, because now, it, you know, there's that margin of error that you would like to have be at least being up a goal. It's no longer existent. Um, and so we're always fighting from behind or while we're fighting with zeros, never up a, up a goal. Um, and it's just – I can see it trying to wear on them. But they, they've been trying to, to – remain mentally strong in that regard and doing their jobs. But at the end of the day, I know it's it's tough on everybody. Well, and is that one of the, the biggest challenges with coaching a, a young team like this is essentially as a, you know, feeder to the Sporting KC players of the future and obviously dealing with younger players, I would imagine um, kind of, you know, it's it's one thing like if if you would have asked yourself when when you were, I don't know, maybe, you know, in the the middle stage of your MLS career, 
um, hey, uh, the offense isn't scoring. Like, how does that affect you as a defender? And, and I don't know. Maybe you, you took it uh, a lot better because you were a veteran in in the game. But maybe early on in your career, it's it's a little harder to to realize. Does that make it more challenging as a coach to try to pass along the mentality to kind of say, hey, even if if the offense isn't going, like, uh, let's try to still just nail down our own end of things. Oh, 100%. It's actually one of the point of emphasis that when I meet with the defenders this week, I'm going to address just to make sure that we're still, we're still, we are staying locked in regardless of what's, you know, happening in the attack. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, goals are really hard to score. It's the hardest thing to do in the sport. We're, we're not capitalizing even on the easy opportunities. Uh, but I want them to understand from, you know, a young age now that regardless of where they end up in their careers, what team, how long down the road, they will be on a team that will go through a drought, and at the end of the day, they need to stay focused and locked in on what they need to do um, because, again, it's, it's part of the sport. Um, and if you can't at least, as a defender, do your job, um, you know, it, you're not looking to get any kind of result ever. So it's easier said than done to teach. But I think that they, like I said, they, they have a lot of growth mindsets. These guys are competitive. They're good people, and they, they really have taken into a lot of what uh, Biggie and I have, have said. It's, it's shown in performances, but not in the results. So, Well, you had an opportunity in the early going for a goal with a penalty kick, uh, but things didn't go your way on that one. Uh, was there something you liked out of the run of play and, and the run of attack and, and the buildup there that, that led to the penalty that you're hoping to, to carry over to more instances during the match? Yeah, for sure. I think we were working on that that the, that week, you know, engaging, uh, engaging defenders, making the defenders have to make decisions. Uh, ball around from Felipe to to, to Colin, who put uh, a nice little slip ball to TJ that made a defender have to make a decision, and we got a PK from it. Uh, you know, things like that we were working on all week, and again they went and applied it uh, in the game. Um, and again. You know, if we're not scoring, you know, the, the chances that we've had and we're not scoring penalty kicks, um, you know, arguably the best chance in the game to have, you know, we, we're going to be struggling. Uh, but, again, they, they haven't wavered in confidence. It's just we just got to see the ball hit the back of the net. I think it's purely mental at this point. We're talking with Igo Para here on Rock Chalk Sports Talk. How would you compare what feels rewarding and satisfying for for you as a coach versus as a player? Yeah, I would say you know take the results uh, out of it. I think for me, seeing the progress of a lot of our defenders, especially because that's who I get to have the most hands-on uh, with, has been very um, you know gratifying. Just seeing how they've started to, to 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 use the nuances and just the little things that make all the difference. And I think them start I think when I first started talking about some of these things they're thinking, uh, like what is that? That doesn't make a difference or I don't see how that will work or why that's necessary and slowly but surely guys have brought it out and it's funny they they come up and they go, Oh like I, I didn't think that you were saying anything like that was nonsensical but like now it's cool to see uh, how it worked kind of thing. And I think just seeing that knowledge pass and that progress has been cool. And, and then as a unit, I mean, to be honest, I, I know we've given up a few goals in the last few games, but they've really been working together and in, in, in unison. And, um, you know, if you had, obviously if you, you weren't here or no one saw, but like when we were an indie brand new team, a whole bunch of new players, we were all over the place. <laughs> uh, and so to see them kind of working in sync, 
uh, but not getting the, I guess, the results of the clean sheets has been um, a bit frustrating. But it's been it's been cool to see. You're back at home, as I mentioned, this Sunday day match at one at Rock Chalk Park to host Salt Lake City. Uh, what kind of challenges are, are they going to provide for you guys, and what do you need to do well to uh, earn three points on Sunday? Yeah, look, I think if we keep doing the things defensively in the press, we we will be sooner rather than later. We will we will we will get into the clean sheet. We will we will be doing all the things, and uh, the, I guess the scoreline will reflect our performance. But for us, we've got to figure out ways to be consistent in, in the attack, be dangerous, make defenders make decisions, create opportunities, finish the opportunities. So I think that's going to be one of the biggest things for us is figuring out ways how we can be on the front foot for 90 minutes in the attack. Um, and Salt Lake's coming to town. They, they've been struggling a bit as well. So it's gonna, this game's going to provide an answer for one of these two teams. He is Iko Parra, assistant coach with Sporting KC2. Go out to the match on Sunday. It's a fun event right over at Rock Chalk Park. 1 o'clock as uh, they're taking on Salt Lake City. Ike, appreciate the time, man. No, thank you. Appreciate any time. That was Ike Opara. We've got tickets that we're giving away. Go to our Twitter account, at RCST1320. Just be following us. Give it a retweet. We'll uh, maybe hook you up with free tickets. We're just going to give them out to uh, random winners. We're going to pick those uh, coming up tomorrow. This is Rock Truck Sports Talk on FM 1017, 1320 KLWN. Depend on it.